Well, this morning, uh, we're glad that you're with us. I'm not sure if the screen's working, but we'll wait and see. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and make your way there with us. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed to do over the years is to run with my kiddos in the stroller. And um, that, that has provided opportunities when they were younger to talk through just different scriptures, or we went through phases when they might ask, what's that, what's that, what's that, right? And we're explaining a thousand times, that's a squirrel, that's a squirrel, that's a squirrel, right? But opportunities. Um, it also provided some moments uh, of, like, running around our neighborhood and up steep hills, and, like, they're like, Dad, what's wrong with you, right? Like, why are we going so slow? Or statements like, uh, Dad, I thought we were going for a run. Why are you walking? And I was like, well, you're about to be evicted and find out why I'm walking, right? And so, and I share that, why? Because a recent headline captured my attention, and Maybe just my connection to it stood out, maybe, but I, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to strike a chord with you. It was a headline in California. It was a teenager who was speeding, going the wrong way down a one-way street, and he was involved in a hit and run. The problem was who he hit. He hit a mother who had an eight-month-old with her in the stroller while they were out for a walk. The sentence for this young man who was on probation at the time was five to seven months in a juvenile court, or in a juvenile camp, I'm sorry. Prosecutors described it as, and I quote, it's less than a military school and a little bit tougher than a summer camp for striking a mother and her eight-month-old in a stroller. And I'm assuming that you hear that and feel like, man, there's some injustice in that. And again, I, I think it strikes the core with me personally. I've had some close encounters at times just of people coming close to us in the stroller. And so maybe, it just, maybe it's more personal in that way. But the reality is I think we hear that and we think, man, what's going on with our culture? What is happening? And I think the culture around us wants to say that our sin isn't that big of a deal. As if we aren't that bad of people after all. That maybe even God's this, like this naive grandfather who's either doesn't notice or doesn't care that much about our sin. And I want you to know that that's not the truth at all. And Genesis 6 through 8 is going to confront us with that truth. That our sin is really a big deal and God does care. But it's going to bring you another truth. A truth that's going to say to us this, we aren't saved because of our goodness, but because of God's grace. We aren't saved because of our goodness, but because of God's grace. I want to be up front with you today. Genesis 6 through 8 is a lot of text. I think it's about 2,000 words, just the text alone. And the majority of that we're going to read at different portions. You might ask why. Well, because God's word's inspired and my sermon isn't. Just being truthful. And so we're going to walk through it, and, and maybe you might think of it today as we walk through this large of a text. It's kind of like you're going on a walk with someone. And we're going to stop, and we're going to notice some trees. And guess what? We're going to look at some trees that you may not care about, or other trees we may pass by, and you're like, dude, what about that tree? I, for another day, another time. But also in the midst of that, we're going to step back and have three big truths that help us not get lost, right? Don't, don't miss the forest for the trees, the old adage. So we're going to have three big kind of ideas to help us frame this text of the flood and Noah's Ark here in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. So if you would, again, if you have your copy of God's Word, hear this truth, the hope of the gospel and the flood of judgment. And it brings us to this first truth. Our hearts are evil. Our hearts are evil. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, a man, were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, 
My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The opening words of Genesis chapter 6 sound that warning, right? The Lord says here in verse 3 when he speaks, My spirit shall not abide, sorry, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. And the reason why is for, he says, he is flesh. It's an indication that our flesh is not good. It's that sinful nature that Moses is speaking of here as he writes in Genesis 6. It's a, it's a wrestling that's the indication again that, that all flesh, all, all of us are sinners. And God is saying a warning here, a a pronouncement of judgment. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And I think in the midst of that, as we raise some maybe some really important questions about this text is, well, what does it say about our sinful hearts? And who specifically is God judging? You may ask, well, what's the big idea? Of course, it's humanity. Well, it's not so clear. Why do I say that? Because, well, here's one of the trees that you would want to look at. And some of you are going to want more time here, and we can talk more later. But this statement here is one that's caused lots of questions. Let's do it again. Verse 2. The sons of God. That, that's what we're wrestling with, okay? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The question is, who are these sons of God? And there's several possibilities, but I want to give you the two major ones. The first one, right? And this may shock some of you. These are fallen angels. There's the thought of the statement, sons of God, is used in places like Job chapter 1 and 2, where it describes angels that have come. And so there's some who hear this text, and again, these are great biblical godly scholars who see that these are fallen angels that have come to the earth. We know that angels can take on human form. How do we know that? Well, passages like Genesis chapter 18 where Abram and Sarai are there and the three visitors come to them. They're, they're the theophany, right? God's shown up in the flesh. Angels are among them. In fact, many scholars are going to interpret passages like Second Peter chapter 2 or Jude verse 6. You might even write it down just to read it later that say that this is speaking about this very passage. This was, in fact, a view that was held by many of the early church fathers. So again, they see that these sons of God are again angels who now take on human form and, and, and procreate with women on the earth. And so they see that this is one of the reasons why God brings judgment. I think there's some challenges with it. There's a challenge with any of you, right? But one is Jesus says in Matthew 19 that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so I think there's a pressing, just a rub there that's difficult. Secondly, I think this context seems to be speaking not about angels who are being punished, but in fact, sinful humanity like us. So if you don't hold that view that the sons of God are actually angels, then you might ask, well, then who are they? And I think it leads us to this second view that's probably the one I land on. But again, I I confess it's, it's a difficult one. It's the chosen line of Seth. Why do I say that? Well, remember back in Genesis chapter four, we had the first murder of Cain and Abel, right, where one brother killed another. The text finished with this end of this line that was coming from um, Adam and Eve. And it says they have another son, Seth. And it's in verse 26 there. I think it's verse 26. It's Genesis 4 ends. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so there's this sense of which, okay, this is the promised seed from Genesis 3 and 15. The seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to strike his heel. This is a promise that, guess what, God's going to bring it about. And we might expect that, guess what, this line or descendants of Seth are living a godly life. But what we see just a couple chapters later is, 
and I believe again, this sons of God, why do I say that? Well, again, because it can be translated godly sons, is the line of Seth, who veered off the path from what God had intended for them to do. Notice what it says here. It's interesting, right, the, the similarity of their sin. It says the sons of God, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose, right? What's that sound like? Sounds like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? They see the apple, and they take and eat it. It's this sin being repeated. Like, guess what? If that's what your flesh wants, and that's what your flesh desires, then by all means, what's right in your own eyes, that's what you ought to do. That's what's seemingly happening here. This godly line is, is stepping away. And again, so that this, I think, helps us eliminate some of the complexities about who are the Nephilim and the descendants of these sons of God procreating with women. But again, it's still a challenge, as, no matter what way in which you wrestle with this. But I think the big picture of why are we talking about this in such detail is because we need to be reminded who's being judged here. And the passage is clear that we are being judged because our hearts are evil. Humanity is sinful. Even those who are believed to be the godly people. Isn't that true about us? It is, isn't it? Notice what God says further there again back in verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And notice this statement here. His days shall be 120 years. Now, some take that to mean that people now are going to only live about 120 years. And if you walk through Genesis further and further, that's the age that most things come to. As you walk through the rest of the Bible, that's the vast majority, right? We heard about the psalmist who said that man's day shall be 70 or 80 years. And that tends to be the average lifespan. But I think that while that's possible that he's saying there's a limit on, on the life and surely that does unfold in Genesis, I think maybe it's also a reminder or a warning to say that in 120 years the judgment is coming, that the flood is going to unfold. Why? Because we hear Jonah saying that same thing, don't we? Forty days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's kind of like maybe your parents saying to you like, hey, you got 20 minutes to get your homework done or clean your room and then I'm going to come and see. It, it seems to be that God's giving this warning to humanity saying, listen, this will not go on forever. Your days are limited. Your days are numbered, so to speak. And so again, the opening verses of Genesis chapter 6 are, are filled with interpretation and difficulty. But I think we need to walk away from it saying, man, our hearts are sinful. And that's exactly what begins to unfold beginning in verse 5. You heard it a while ago. Listen to it again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When Pastor Kevin DeYoung says this notes a sevenfold description of man's wickedness. Notice what it says here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice what this starts out. Every. Right? There's no exception. Notice here it says the intention. This is not an accident. Of the thoughts. Right? This is, is with Things happening within. Notice he says further to them, this is of his heart, right? These are deep-seated core issues of our hearts that are sinful. Notice what he says here. It was only, right? There's, there's nothing else. It's evil. It's not weakness. This isn't struggling. This isn't like I got some bad habits. No, he says the Bible calls our sin evil. And notice what he says here. It's happening continually. It doesn't let up. Genesis 6 from the opening pages confronts all of us with our evil hearts. And the temptation for every one of us is to say, yeah, but. Yeah, but I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Yeah, but I'm not like those people that live that kind of sinful lifestyle. Yeah, but I'm not like. That's the temptation. 
Or for others of you, you hear this, and man, it just pushes you and smashes you further to think, you know what, that's so true, and there's no hope for someone like me. I want to say to all of us, there's hope coming. There is hope, there is rescue coming in the very pages of Genesis 6 through 8 and the flood. But look what happens further. Pick up your wood, beginning in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So again, it sounds like Enoch, right? As we talked about a few weeks ago, this is this righteous, holy man. It says, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Three times in verses 11 through 12, we hear this refrain about the earth, or about the people there. Notice he says that they are corrupt. He says they are corrupt. They're corrupt. And that corruption indicates like it's like something like you've opened the fridge before, right? And you're like, oh, what is that, right? How did that just grow in there and happen, right? It, it indicates this, this spoiling, this ruining of God's good design of what he created life to be and what, what we were created to do to image him and to be in perfect relationship with him and one another. And it's corrupted. It's spoiled it's ruined but further notice what else you probably heard it there right a couple times in these verses here he says that we are the earth is filled with violence you heard it there in verse 11 but you also hear it um uh, again in verse 13 i think yeah right here it says for the earth is filled with violence this is more than just murder right when we hear violence we think of that it is that but it's also outright lawlessness and injustice it's not like any place you know Lawlessness rules and justice seems to have the day. It seems to consume our country and the world around us. We live in a time today when sin is celebrated. Might we hear again the old prophet Isaiah saying to us in 700 B.C., 2700 years ago, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's the culture you live in, beloved. But the reminder is, guess what? That hasn't something new come on the scene. That's what's happening back here all these years ago in Genesis 6 through 8. Let's be honest. We live in a day right now as Southern Baptists in a Southern Baptist church when we've got to, we get a black eye. We've heard of corruption and evil thoughts of prominent pastors, seminary professors, trusted leaders that have been exposed. And guess what? Those things demand justice. And we ought to be a voice into that end. And as we see our culture, we ought to be a voice stepping up and speaking, Thus saith the Lord. Can I get a witness? But I think also Genesis 6 has to say to us that this isn't just describing our culture. It's also describing us. It's hard. I think it's important, church, that before the flood becomes a judgment on everyone else and a warning to our culture, it first needs to be a judgment and a warning to our own souls. Last night we were officiating a little bit of a disagreement between two of the Jesse kids in the back seat. One was completely innocent, of course, until a third, another witness stepped on the scene. And he said, yeah, what? Well, what about right before you did that or she hit you? To which a big smile came across the offender's face. I think it's a reminder. We love to all see ourselves as the victim, don't we? We all, man. 
But Genesis 6 pulls back the curtain and says to us all, it's our hearts too. It's my heart too. It's your heart too. So Noah, if you pick up verses 14 to 16, Noah is to build this ark. It's bigger than a football field, right? It's maybe what we might think of a small cargo ship today. But we need to ask, why? Why is, why is Noah building this? Why is he building this boat? Why? Because our sin demands a response from God. And that, that's where we come to in the next truth here. Is that our evil hearts rightly deserve God's judgment. Our evil hearts, this is all of us. Our evil hearts rightly deserve God's judgment. Pick up the wood, verse 17 of Genesis chapter 6. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now there's disagreement about this, but to me that sounds like a global flood and not a local flood. Words like everything that is on the earth shall die. But in the midst of Genesis chapter 6 unfolding about this evil, our evil hearts and the judgment of God, we begin to see Genesis chapter 7 step on the scene. In Genesis chapter 7, the first 16 verses talk about this great flood. And then the last half of the passage talks about this global graveyard that begins to unfold. You need to think about it like this, almost as if you're watching a movie. And the first 16 verses talk about everything happening inside the ark and all that's going on here. And then the scene changes as we come to verse 17 in a moment. And it begins to look outside the ark, saying, what's happening out there? What about all the people out there? So let's deal with first the first 16 verses here, this great flood, hearing that our hearts our evil hearts rightly deserve God's judgment. Pick up if you would, beginning in verse 7, or verse 1 of Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, then the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain. So now, like we heard maybe 120 years, now we, we realize, man, the timeline has, has moved fast. There's seven days. There's a week. It's coming. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Hear it again there in verse 4, right? It, it says that God says, I'm, I'm going to bring rain upon the earth. This judgment's coming. It's going to be 40 days and 40 nights of just this torrential monsoon. We're going to see it in a moment. The, the, the heavens are opening. The great deeps are opening, right? There's a sense in which like this chaos back where we read in Genesis chapter 1 that there's a seemingly chaos where God separates and begins to order things, that this disorder is now filling the earth, right? There's just this flood that's coming upon. But, I mean, uh, the boys and I, we were driving home from the park the other night. The games got rained out. And, man, within like... I mean, like four or five minutes, we're driving home, and there's like waters running across the road. There's like muddy water everywhere. And I was like, guys, this is happening in a couple minutes. Can, we can't even begin to, it boggles the mind to think what would happen in 40 days and 40 nights of unrelenting rain and the deeps opening up. I mean, there's just no way to fathom the judgment of God upon the earth. But notice again, he, he says, I, every living thing, verse 4, that I have made, he says, I'm going to blot out. From the face of the ground. He says, I, I'm going I'm to wipe it out. Everyone. Hear that today. No one is immune from the judgment then. And they aren't today either. None of us are immune to the judgment. But, but look. Uh, maybe you heard chapter 6 there. 
the fact that he was to bring a pair of every animal on the ark. And then you heard back here, and it maybe, it maybe caught you off guard a little bit. Because you heard that in verse 2 that you are to take with you, notice what he says here, seven pairs of all what? All the clean animals. Now the unclean, guess what? It's just one pair taken. You might ask, well, why is that? Well, it's twofold. One is because they were only allowed to eat the clean animals, so they would undoubtedly need more of them. But secondly, after the flood, there's going to be sacrifices made. And I think it says something to us, doesn't it? That even this flood that's coming is not sufficient to cleanse man's heart. There's something more that's needed. There's something greater that's going to need to come. It's the sacrifice ultimately, right? As we're going to look in a moment to the cross in Christ. That there's a greater, a more perfect judgment that is awaiting. God's going to bring upon it. But I think it also has to be in some way, again, that he's going to take seven pairs of all clean animals, not only for food, but sacrifices. It has to be a moment of hope for us, doesn't it? Doesn't this say to us, God sees beyond the storm? He sees that there's life after the storm. There's covenant, there's relationship after the storm. And maybe that's just an encouragement today to some of you who are in the midst of a storm. And it feels like, man, I don't know, I'm going to make it through. I don't know, like, this is just too much. Might it just whisper to you today that there's a God who sees beyond the storm and he's already making provisions for you? That's a good God, amen? I don't have much hair, but I'm telling you right now, it is trying with all its might to stand up. You cannot see it, but if you had a magnifying glass, you would, I'm like, it just gets, I mean, like, that's not a good God, isn't it? That's a good Father. Man, praise God. Look what happens here in the text, beginning in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and his sons' wives with him went in the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds and of every that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went in the ark when Noah as God had commanded. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. That, that, that's, again, important. We don't have time today to look at that tree, but, man, there's just some timestamp datings, right, that are happening here that are important to kind of help us unfold how long this is going to take place on the earth. But, but I want you to hear, hopefully, in the midst of this, again, about God's righteous judgment. It, it's, the hearts are evil, man. But in the midst of it, like, I, I'm just going to tell you, I, I like, I... It was like a life preserver to me this week that I studied verse 7 of Genesis 7. Look at it again. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark. Notice what it says. To escape what? The waters of the flood. Judgment. I heard it. Beloved, the only way to escape the judgment of God was for Noah and his family to come into the ark. Today, the only way for you to escape the judgment of God is to come to the eternal ark of Christ. Brothers and sisters, like the ark, Jesus is the only safe place for us to escape the judgment of God. It's Christ who shields and protects us from God's wrath and eternal hell and separation from Him. Today, as you see the judgment coming, run to Christ. Do you hear it? Run to Christ with everything that's in me. Run to Christ. Hear Paul's words of hope, the church at Thessalonica in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse ten. But Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is to come, that is such good news in the midst of judgment. 
Such good news in the midst of judgment. That there's escape from the waters of the flood. I just thought, man, as I meditated on that this week, I was like, thank you, Jesus. Praise God that there's an escape for the judgment that's rightly coming to my sinful heart. Look what happens here, verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Then verse 16. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. God shuts the door. You, you hear Jesus warning right in many stories about the judgment of God and that there's going to come a time when the door will be shut and many will show up too late wanting in. It's a real warning, beloved. It's a real warning. But, but verse 13 is interesting in some way. Notice what he says here. Count with me just for a moment if you would. On the very same day, we have Noah, we have his sons, which is Shem, Ham, Japheth. We have Noah's wife, and then we have three wives of each of the boys. That's eight. That's not an accidental number. The number eight is the number of renewal or recreation. It's, it's the sense in which God's saying, I'm going to do a new thing from these eight people, this renewal number, this number of recreation. God's going to do a new thing. So it's not accidental what's happening here. But I do think it, it's, it's, if I'm being transparent, it's been pretty humbling to me. You guys know that I struggle with pride. That's not a hidden like thing. I, man, I, I pray daily that God would put to death the sinful thoughts and prideful arrogance in my heart. But I think this reminds me, and maybe it reminds you, like those thoughts that the church can't do without you. Or who could ever replace you at your job? Or what's this community going to do if you weren't here giving or doing whatever you do in your position in the community? God wipes out everyone in the judgment except eight people, and he can start everything from that. It ought to humble us. It ought to remind all of us that we are small. I don't know if you heard the story I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly Muhammad Ali was on an airplane and they're about to take off and the stewardess walks down and she simply says to him, sir, would you put on your seatbelt? And he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked back at him and said, yeah, but Superman don't need no plane either. It's a reminder, right, that we are all weak, even the greatest among us. Even the greatest among us. Beloved, we, we are grass. The scripture says we are here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, we... Beloved, I don't know about you, but I, I drive past sometimes and see you guys' fields after the harvest, and it, it's a reminder, like, man, this life is short. Just a few days ago, it was beautiful, and you were seeing that, and now the harvest is coming, and like, our lives are short, beloved. Genesis 6 through 8 reminds us, life is precious. Don't waste it. So again, I told you that the first 16 verses are what's happening there inside the ark, giving us some important information. Verses 17 to 24, because I look outward at this global graveyard that's taking place. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read it together. Verse 17 of Genesis chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. I apologize. I need to stop and just tell God, thank you. He's been so kind to me this morning. Would you just pray with me? Father, thank you for being so kind. Your spirit is just present. God, the very things we've cried out to you on our face for. And in this moment, I sense this to the people. They're listening. They're hearing your word. They're drawn. That is you, God. I can't do that. I just want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
name, amen. Man, he's so good. All right. Uh, verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I know we have the temptation to read Genesis 6 through 8, the flood, like it's a children's story. It's like some Caribbean cruise. Beloved, this is carnage the likes of which the earth has not seen before and not seen since. But the warning is that there is another judgment coming. Peter says it's not a flood, but a judgment of fire that shall consume the heavens and the earth and all those who are in opposition to God and His Son, Jesus. Hear that again. Verse 21. This is, this is hard, okay? I know the context. There's children here. I'm not trying to scare people. We've got to wrestle with this. And all flesh, what, church? Died. I think it's clear. It doesn't say they drowned. It isn't just saying this is just some accident that happened because there was a a natural disaster, so to speak. It says they've died. I think it's the text reminding us this is God's judgment on sin. And when it says all flesh, I mean, again, I'm not trying to paint the picture too graphic, but can you imagine as a mom or a dad or as a grandparent, you're trying to get your grandchildren and your little ones as high to ground as possible. And no matter how high you go, it just keeps chasing you. Can you imagine the elderly and the weak? This is hard. And the Bible doesn't apologize for God's judgment. It says that he's holy, he's righteous, and he's good. It ought to warn us how serious our sin is and how holy of a God we stand before. All flesh died. But I do think it's remarkable that in the midst of all of this, there's this great ship built by this man that's actually floating upon the water. Right? I mean, different points. Right? Look, uh, it it talks about, and maybe it's, let's see here. Notice it says here, verse like 17, that it bore up the ark and the ark floated on the face of the waters. It doesn't sink. It doesn't capsize. It floats above all the chaos around it. And guess what? It has no engine or rudder. There's just a God who's guiding it. Let that be a reminder to us right here in this moment that if Noah and his family do survive this, it's because of God's grace. God's grace, not Noah's skill, not our skill, just grace that will bring us home. I mean, that's what we've been singing, though, isn't it? Through many, through many dangers, come on, toils and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will what, church? Lead us home. You've been singing it. It's Noah's ark. If no one in his family survive, it will be grace. And I think that's where this text comes to a culmination and a high point. And I want to finish with that today. With this third and great truth. Yes, our hearts are evil. And God righteously and deservingly so, He judges us in our sin. But this truth hangs above them all. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Hear now the word of the Lord. I want to read it to you. It's going to read verses 1 through 12. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. God does that. The rain from the heavens were restrained. God does that. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That's somewhere in modern-day Turkey. We're not sure which mountains, but that's that area. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a fleshly, freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. If you study Genesis 6 through 9, what you're going to see is this, it's called a chiasm, right? And so it's from the Greek letter chi, and why that is, because the Greek letter chi looks like an X. And so what's kind of happening is that like there's this funnel, like the, the, the author will make a point A, B, and then he'll make his point, and they'll be like B, A, he'll come back out of it. Kind of like the, what flows in, it's kind of like the waves and the ocean, it now flows back out. That's what's happening here. You may feel like, Blake, this is too technical. I'm telling you, this is such good news, you need to hear it. So study with me just for a moment to hear what's happening. Now, again, it, it's happening on a grander scale, Genesis 6 through 9, but I want to just kind of really tighten in the scope just so you see it and get a feel for it and see where is every bit of this text pointing because that's what's happening. It's like a treasure map. X marks the spot. And so wherever the middle of this section is, that's what the author says. This is the big point. Don't miss it. So what me would just for a moment. Let's rewind the text, Genesis chapter 7. You may have noticed some of these verses went great. That was intentional. Pick up as you would. Watch this. Verse 4. Notice here. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I've made, I'll blot out. So we hear the number 7 starting first, right? We're going to come to 40 in a second. And then also again, here, this next number. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So we have the number 7. Now we have another number 7. Look what happens here further. Verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So we have 7, 7, and 40. And then listen to this right here as we come to it. Verse 24, this is how Genesis 7 ends. And the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. So if you're keeping score, that's 7, 7, 40, sorry, and 150. So it might make sense, if that's what the author is doing, that we're going to see these, in fact, now come in reverse order. And when we do, what's in between the two 150s is what the author wants you to see. So now let's look back again to our text we just read. So again, verse 3. At the water receded from the earth continually at the end of, notice what he says here, 150 days. So there's our 150. Look at verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. So we've seen our 150, our our 40, now we're expecting to see some sevens. Watch what happens. Verse 10, he waited another seven days. Again, it sent forth the dove out of the ark. Then he, verse 12, he waited another seven days. So now the text is showing us this pattern. Again, it's happening on a much bigger scale, but this zeroes it in. So it says to us between chapter 7, verse 24, and Genesis chapter 8, verse 3, the author's pointing somewhere. He's pointing to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, and this is the big idea of everything happening 
And it's just this statement that I hope and pray you leave. If you leave with nothing else, you leave with this. This simple statement, four words. But God remembered Noah. That's where everything's been laying. It's all that Moses is working to help us see and remember. But God remembered Noah. It's X marks the spot. This is the treasure chest, right? This is the moment. God remembered Noah. That's the hope of the gospel in the midst of being sinners. And you might say, well, Noah's this righteous, perfect guy. Well, walk with Noah to the next chapter. He gets drunk and all kinds of things unfold in his family, right? Noah's not the perfect one, right? Noah wasn't good enough. So if you hear that, it's not like, oh, man, i got to be like Noah. Yeah, we need to follow Noah's example, but don't hear that Noah's like saved because he was good enough. No, Noah is saved because God remembered Noah. And God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And we need to ask, I think here is, why? Why is God remembering Noah? That's what's at the heart of this. Why is God remembering Noah? Well, guess what? It was one of the trees we walked by earlier. It was Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Listen to it again, verse 7, to get some context. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then this statement, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Depending on your translation, the word favor there may actually show up as grace. That's what the word is. Noah found grace. He didn't earn or deserve it. Grace is receiving what we've never earned or deserved. Yes, Noah is a righteous man, a blameless man. He, he walks with God like Enoch. But the hope for Noah is the same hope for us. It's grace. It's all of us today who see and recognize our sin. Is there any greater word in the face of God's judgment than grace? That God in His mercy would forgive our sins and grant us eternal life? You might ask, well, where did this faith lead Noah and where should it lead me? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament answers that. Look what it says, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. That's, again, he's walking by faith. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Did you hear it? What's the response? What's the right response to grace? It's faith. It's hearing that and receiving it. It's believing it's It's stopped working, saying the fight's already been won. He won my victory. He purchased my pardon. I am resting in Christ's perfect life. It's faith responding to grace. And that's what Noah does. It's amazing grace that it caused him to trust that God had showed him favor when he hadn't earned or deserved it. So what's he do? Well, the text says that guess what? He begins in reverent fear to construct an ark for the saving of his household. Consider what that meant for Noah. Man, he's given up decades seemingly of his life to build this massive ship that I'm sure everybody's like, dude, what are you doing? He sacrifices great material resources. I mean, in some ways, like he's got to be giving up other things that he could be doing on this earth. He's given it up in obedience to God. It appears foolish. It appears Mo- Noah is wasting his life. But he's doing good, the text says, not only for him, but also the saving of his household. In fact, he's doing good for the community around him, even though they reject him. And he's doing good for all of God's creatures. Isn't that what grace does in our hearts? It changes us from being self-centered to begin looking, saying, God, how can I live my life for your glory and the good of others? That's what grace does. That's the life of faith. 
I think maybe I just wrote this question. I think it's a, this text forces us to ask ourselves a question. Am I leading my household toward salvation or away from it? Young folks, are you leaving, leading your friends, classmates toward Christ or away from him? No one reverent fear constructs an ark for the saving of his household. The text finishes here in Genesis 8. Noah removes the covering of the ark and look and behold the face of the ground was dry. Verse 13. We then now find our dating right the second month. On the 27th day of the month the earth dried out. You might say, well how long were they actually on the ark? It appears that likely they were on there for one full year. 365 days. Again, there's some, some adjustments on that one way or the other. But that's how long they are. And God says to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, they leave. And so do the animals on the ark. And it says that verse 20, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, and this is going to lead us into future weeks as we begin to deal with the rainbow and the covenant, all these important things. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did you hear it, young people? Even from our youth. We hear David say, I was surely sinful from my mother's womb. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Listen to the statement. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This says to us, as we experience spring now becoming summer, that we've, by God's grace here, survived the last winter. It's a reminder that we are doing so because God's faithful and merciful. It's just a clear indication to you that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, that you're still here. As we go out, farmers and and gardeners and others, as you plant seed time, as you harvest, it's a reminder. God's saying to you, I am merciful. You're you're sharing in my mercy and joy, treasure. To the unbeliever today, I heard a preacher once say, the flood was God's way of wiping away the stain of the world's sin. But then he reminded us no flood was actually strong enough to do that. But there was a greater flood that came. It's a greater flood that came not just simply to wash away humanity, but to cleanse our hearts. In fact, we're going to sing it in a moment, but you might hear these familiar lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood that flows or drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Did you hear that today? Unbeliever, the judgment of God is coming on us because of our evil heart. Every one of us here this morning, we will face the judgment of God But the good news is there is cleansing. There is a flood of Christ's blood on that precious cross. His life for you. This story is good news. It says to us, as Noah prefigures what God will do in Jesus, God sends His Son, who's a righteous man, who trusts and obeys God. He disadvantages himself for the good of his community. And he inhabits a wooden vessel. But this time it's not an ark, but a cross. And on there... He takes the judgment for the sinners. Today, will you, unbeliever, acknowledge your sin, that your heart is evil and that you can't change it, and that you rightly stand condemned under the judgment of God this day? Would you come now crying out to Him for salvation? To the church this morning, Jesus is the new and the better Noah. 
Why? Because he rescues us from an even greater death. Why? Because he doesn't get on the ark, so to speak, but he steps in the waters on our behalf and takes the judgment of God so we can get on the ark. You see it? He says, here, this is rightly mine to get on this ark and no one else deserves it, but I'll step off the ark and take your judgment so that you can get on. Hallelujah, that's the best news. That's who he is. Guys, because Christ was crucified, buried, but on the third day raised again, he has defeated the judgment of God. He has satisfied God's judgment. God has a right to be angry with us because of our sin, but the cross and the empty tomb say to all of us today as the church, his mercy is more. That is good news. Believer, no matter your week or how you've struggled, what sins are besetting you or temptations are snagging you up, Trust in knowing that Christ has secured our standing with the Father and He will never, ever, ever give up on us. In fact, church, I pray you walk away realizing Noah doesn't survive the flood because he was so smart to build an ark or because he lived so well that God says, well, I can't live without old Noah. Beloved, Noah is saved because God saved him. Believer, hear this today as we close this final statement. If you're saved, it's because by God's grace, He saved you. God remembers those who are His. Rest in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we just want to say thank You. This text is so much. And there's so much that hits at our hearts. But yet, Lord, we know the hope that it reveals. God, in Your great mercy and grace, You stepped in and You died in our place. Jesus, you bore the wrath, the judgment that was reserved for us. And now all we know is grace. We are seated at your table as sons and daughters. Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for saving us from the wrath that is to come. Let our hearts now sing joyfully. And I pray that all those who are apart from Christ in this room will come running to you. I pray this for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.